You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. So, uh, Pastor Mike mentioned that I worked on the Awakened branding, and, and while we were in the process of really establishing the new brand for Awakened Church, we looked at the values of the church. And instead of just putting a logo on or a new name on the church, we wanted to really see as we're in this period of growth, if there's anything we should look at as a church to really make sure that we're solid as we grow. Because you know, if you have a, a, a structure that's supporting 10,000 pounds of weight, if there's little cracks in the foundation or there's cracks in the beams that are supporting the roof, if it suddenly has to support 100,000 pounds of weight, that you're probably gonna run into some problems. And so we looked at the, the values that the church has and one of the things that we looked at was this value, and you can read about it in Jurgen's new book, Awaken, of known, loved, wanted, and needed. And we looked at that because sometimes, especially if you have a religious mindset, you'll look to people and you'll look to a situation and say, how can I be useful here? Can I find a place that I'm needed? Because if I'm needed, hopefully I'll be wanted. And if I'm wanted, hopefully I'll be loved. And maybe if I'm loved, I'll, I'll, I'll become known. And it's not a healthy place to come from. It's helpful to wanna to be needed, but the healthiest way to approach that is to do what God does to be known first. So we developed this value known, because if you're known and become loved, that it's a lot deeper than trying to be needed to become known and if you're known and realize that in being known that you're actually loved and in being loved you're actually wanted, it opens up this incredible potential to be able to step out and try out things, try out your gifting, see is like, is this really where I'm meant to, to be? Is this really where I'm meant to, to thrive? And you think about like the creative night that's, that's coming up. I had only sung in the shower for years but in coming to this church in one year, really becoming known and realizing not that just that I was loved by the church, but I was loved by the community that had surrounded me. And the first year that I was at this church, I came here on my second date with my wife. And one year later, we had dated, become engaged, gotten married, and became pregnant with our daughter. So a lot had happened in a year, and I'd stepped out from being like a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants bachelor living by myself and for myself to being fully committed not only to my wife and my growing family, but also to a church that had known me and loved me and really made me feel wanted. And I saw this, this trailer for Hero, the rock musical, and it was the first year of Hero it was a brand new thing. I'd just seen Twisted and it was amazing. And it was an open call for auditions. And I just had this nudge from the Holy Spirit of you need to go audition. 
But because I knew that I was known and in being known, I was loved and in being loved, I was wanted, I wasn't scared to step out and, and be a little vulnerable, actually kind of be a lot of vulnerable in stepping out and really bringing 100% to an audition. And in, in doing that, I was terrified But I had enough trust in the relationship that I was in to step out in faith, regardless of that, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And when Leanne, Pastor Leanne asked me it, how I would feel about being bloodied and beaten in front of a large audience for several days in a row in my underwear, potentially while singing a rock ballad, actually, probably, definitely while singing a rock ballad, I'd already done this, the hard part of stepping out in faith and, and auditioning, so I just wanna encourage you guys in that. So part of that value came from a quote that I'd read, and if you have that, that um, well, actually first, let me tell you, the title of my message is All Things New. And you think of all things being made new, but God, knew us before he formed us. And so tonight I really wanna talk about being known in the context of relationships. So the title of the message is All Things New. And there's this quote by Tim Keller, and if it's up on the uh, screen, so to be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is actually our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us against any difficulty that may come. And it's, a, it's this beautiful model that God sets up. And the Bible says that he actually knew us before he formed us. And being fully known by God, if you, if you really know his character, and or allow, like, allow yourself to be known by him. That's the first step in, in relationships. And the Bible says that we loved because he first loved us. And I'll get to that a little bit, bit later. But I, I want to talk to you about a, something that I, I became a, aware of uh, a few years ago. And it was actually a story that I told my wife when I, when I proposed to her that in the Jewish tradition, there is a ceremony called erusin. And erusin is what we would call betrothal or a proposal. But there's a lot more to this ceremony, to this period of time, than what we consider to be just an engagement, a handing of a, a ring. But in Erosene, if I was a guy that I was interested in a girl, I would go to her father and I would bring a bunch of stuff along with me, maybe like five or 10 camels and 14 donkeys and 18 chickens and 12 goats or something and come to her dad with all of, all of this livestock and say, I would really love to see if your daughter would be interested in marrying me. It wasn't an arranged marriage. It was an opportunity that the guy paid a great price for. So the prospective groom and the prospective bride would sit under a, a tent called a chuppah, and the groom would talk to the bride, and they're, they're, everything's very ceremonial. So he, before they, they really got into it, he would bless 
the bread and he would break it. And there would be a, the first prayer that was said over the ceremony. And they would talk and they would laugh and they would connect over the breaking of bread. And then he would say another prayer, he would give thanks and he would pour her a glass of wine and he would pass her a glass of wine and if she drank the wine, she was saying yes. And then she would go back to her parents' house and get rid of all of her clothes and she'd sew a, no, a whole new wardrobe for herself in preparation for her wedding day. And the groom would go back to his father's house and would build a mansion or a wing onto his father's house. Because in ancient Israel, they didn't live separated from each other, they lived in community. So he'd build a, a wing onto his father's house where they were going to live in community as a family. But because the father is the head of the household, only the father would be able to say when that wing or when that mansion was finished. And in the meantime, the groom would send his best man to communicate with his bride-to-be. You know, he'd send, her on, he'd send him on horseback or camelback or whatever they rode with a little note. Do you, do you still love me? Circle one, yes, no, maybe. And then send it to her. And she'd be like, oh my gosh, of course I do. And send it back. And he'd be like, oh, it's so great. But the groom and the bride wouldn't communicate directly during that time. It would be the purpose of the best man to be the communicator between the groom and the bride. And then one night when everything was finished, at the house, the father would tell his son that this place is finished, go send your groomsman to go fetch your bride. So the groomsman would ride into the town where the bride-to-be was on their horseback, blowing their shofar, their little horns, and they would come and fetch the bride and bring her back for the wedding feast. Anybody think this, this story sounds familiar? And it's, it's this beautiful picture in, in this being known that God sets up. You know, he sets up the, the relationship of Christ and his bride, the church, the same way he sets up the groom and the bride where they come together and there's a preparation for marriage in Erosene. So come with me in your Bibles to, uh, in Luke to uh, Luke twenty two fourteen. This is the, the Last Supper. So when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine till the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. So the 12 apostles would have known when he passed that cup to them that he wasn't just saying, here, have some wine. 
but he was inviting them into communion with him. And the word communion is actually fascinating. I love words, and I was looking up the word communion, and it says to do something or to participate in something that is common to all men. And we think of communion as something sacred because God will take the everyday things and make them sacred. It's the enemy that takes the things that are sacred and makes them common. God takes the common things and makes them sacred. There's a, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, there's a, a saying that the Bible has for that. And in Genesis 4.1, it says, and Adam knew Eve. I always took knowing people as common. There's a real estate agent in Pacific Beach named Pete, and there's billboards all over PB that say, Pete knows PB. <laughs> I didn't really grow up in church, so I didn't know what it, was, what it meant to know somebody biblically. <laughs> but as soon as I found out, I had this, just this strong urge to go deface Pete's billboards <laughs> saying Pete knows PB biblically. Though I'm grateful for conviction because that would have been, that would have been terrible. But, you know, when I was thinking about that in, in preparing this message, that's really what my heart was when I was a teenager. Like, I didn't grow up in, in church, so I had no idea. The idea of, of, of saving myself until marriage was so foreign to me that pornography had been a part of my life since I was really, really young. And in high school, it was a race to lose my virginity as fast as humanly possible. I didn't think of sex as being something that was sacred, something that should be preserved until marriage. I thought of it as something that was common. And this thing that's meant to be the greatest connector, the, the deepest form of intimacy that a man and a woman can share, I had made common. I had just taken the world's viewpoint of sexual expression and thought like, I thought variety was really the thing to go after. I wanted to be like Pete. <laughs> I wanted to be a, a player. Because where I grew up, being a player was like, that's like, that's the thing to, to be. And, and I took that, I, I didn't realize that there was any problem with that, but the enemy takes what is sacred and makes it common. God takes what is common and makes it sacred. Taking what's sacred and making it common destroys holiness and ultimately destroys heaven inside you. But coming into agreement with God and taking the common thing and making it sacred is, is an act of bringing heaven to earth. And when I got, it, when I got, five, well, I'll get to that point eventually. But so, you know, come with, come with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, 11. 
says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then when I'm in heaven, I shall know just as I am also known. You know, and I, I think it just even about that word player. It's like somebody who plays. My kids have play dates. You know, but when you grow up, you stop playing and start to seek something like building something that's more intimate, that's more permanent. And we build things in every area of our life. Like as I've grown up, I've had to choose the things that I'm putting my energy towards because anybody that is adulting realizes that, gosh, I don't have that much time. When I was a kid, it seemed like I had all the time in the world and summers lasted forever. But as an adult, I'm realizing like, gosh, time is flying by. I don't have an unlimited resource of time. I wanna be intentional about what I put my time towards. I wanna build something that's substantial. I don't just wanna, I don't just wanna play. And there's a, growing, growing up, and uh, some of you guys know, know my story, but I, I was exposed to pornography when I was six years old. My, uh, my mom, who was studying psychology, didn't want me to think sex was something to be ashamed of or something that I couldn't talk about openly with. And so when I found a couple of Playboy magazines and asked her what they were, she just said I could have them. Thinking that that would make it not something weird. But if you're the only kid in first grade that has Playboys, it's super weird. Because kids want to be the only one that has something. You know, I want to be the first. Like my kids, when they were get home, like I want to be the first one up the, the stairs. And so I was the first one to have porn. And I told everybody about it. <laughs> to the point where kids weren't allowed to come over to my house. But just opening that door a little bit made it really hard for my mom to say no when I brought things that were a little bit more hardcore than Playboy Home. And by the time I was eight or nine years old, I had a huge collection. I had a closet that was 14 feet long in my room and from floor to ceiling in that closet, it was plastered with centerfolds from adult magazines. You know, you give the enemy a foothold and he'll, he'll just kick that door right, right open. So it became something that was just common in my life. I never thought it was something that was weird. Everybody that I knew was using porn in the same way that I was. When I finally figured out what it was used for, uh, when I was a little bit later in, in elementary school, right before going into junior high, it opened up a whole new door. And at that point, I was like years away from having an intimate relationship with a woman 
And I didn't think any of the things that I was doing would prevent that connection. But what I found out about pornography, and I've read about it a lot, not just in like on like the 700 Club or some like Christian magazine, but like actually reading about it in psychology today, there are so many statistics about what happens in your mind that I trained myself to seek out variety. I didn't seek out depth. I sought out breadth. You know, and in, in one night looking at porn, especially when the internet came along, I could see more n- naked people than my grandfather probably would have seen in several lifetimes just in one night. And if there was something that I wasn't interested in, it's just click onto the, click onto the, click onto the next one. Training my mind to seek out variety and being able to say, Nope, not good enough. Nope, not good enough. Nope, not good enough. Nope, not good enough. Which is different than when you actually experience a relationship with a real person. And I found as a pretty young man that it was hard for me to stay interested over a long period of time. Because I just trained my mind. It was like build up to conquest and then fairly quick downward spiral to it not working out. And I always thought that it was her problem. And I found myself in these situations over and over again. And I'd had, um, I had other things happen as a child and as a young man, both experimentation with bisexuality and homosexuality. And I started to think when I couldn't stay interested in an intimate relationship with a woman that maybe I needed to look outside of that. And it's easy to get really down on yourself when that's something that most people don't talk about with their guy friends. I read a a study, a a Canadian psychologist, Simon Longinus, had uh, a study where he studied the effects of porn on young men. And when he first had the idea for the study, he couldn't find a control group because he couldn't find enough young guys that weren't using porn to be able to study it scientifically. So... Eventually, though, there were a bunch of guys that had the same problem. And six or seven years ago, the largest growth group for, uh, for Viagra and Cialis were 24 to 26-year-old men, which is crazy because should, you should be in the prime of your life not trying to like, get something to stay interested while you're being intimate. So there's a, there's a lot in there that was, was really challenging. And when I came to faith, my whole world got turned upside down around what I'd believed. I'd been being groomed to be the global creative director for a large technology company. And the person that was in that position offered me his job. He was starting an agency and wanted me to work both for this company and then also work for him. And it was a huge deal job with a lot of money and a lot of responsibility and a lot of uh, like power, prestige, like all of the stuff that you work a whole career for. And I got radically saved in a Holy Spirit encounter in a church. It had nothing to do with what the pastor was having, was saying on stage, but everything to do with what God was doing in my mind and in my heart uh, while I was just sitting in the church. And I felt 
like I needed to be baptized and I needed to be discipled and I didn't know what either of those words meant. And the people that I'd gone to church with, they were just like, oh yeah, yeah, baptism, you just get around to it. The church has baptisms every six months or something. It's an outward expression of an inward change. And I'm like, no, I think it's, I think it's like deeper than that. And I, I really like need to do this. And so I ended up getting, getting baptized in the church that I was going to had a year long uh, missionary equipping discipleship school. I had come from like a very, very liberal, very of the world, open-minded uh, background. And to be around evangelical Christians that were interested in going and being missionaries in foreign countries, like you couldn't have found a group more different than what, I didn't even actually know a Republican. I thought people that had W stickers on their car, it was like a hipster mustache. It was like this ugly, ironic, ridiculous thing that nobody actually voted for him. I thought the elections were fixed. Like that's where I was. But suddenly I'm feeling this internal call to like go hang out at the feet of Jesus for a year and turn down this major job. And I'm around people. I literally thought that if you had purposed purity until marriage, there were only three reasons that somebody would do that. Either they were hideously ugly, <laughs> somehow physically deformed so that they, you know, or they were just incredibly socially awkward. But other than, and then it's like convenient, like, oh, I'm staying pure until marriage, you know? Like there's a, <laughs> sure you are, you know? It's a, that's easy. But I actually met people that weren't ugly, weren't awkward, and weren't obviously deformed. <laughs> that were living by a different standard than I, I had grown up with. And the thing that was weird to me about it is their lives were working. Their lives made sense. Their relationships were flourishing while I'm like experiencing failure to launch and had no idea why, because I thought I was wise in my own mind. I thought I had it all figured out. So there are a couple of things and I just wanna share them with you really quick. This is from Psychology Today. It, may also, it also may be that pornography changes the user's perception of relationships, leading them to downgrade monogamy or to expect to have multiple partners with potentially limited attachment, possibly leading to infidelity or boredom with one partner. Pornography may lead viewers to have unrealistic expectations for sexual partners as well in terms of appearance and in terms of sexual behavior, leading to dissatisfaction in real romantic relationships or even gender-linked aggressive and degrading attitudes and behaviors. So they had uh, statistics around breakups and they said that people that don't use porn have a 12% breakup rate compared to 35% among porn users. That porn viewing was associated with lower sexual satisfaction. Research showed that sexual satisfaction began to decline with pornography of just a few times per year. And this is where I really wanted to, uh, what I really wanted to look at, that pornography 
use begets loneliness, and loneliness begets pornography use. Pornography use and loneliness, it, they, they did a study on it uh, with like 12,000 people and found that they were loneliness and pornography use were really interlinked. They found among these, uh, these people that they studied, they found that among married adults, that overall the chance for divorce doubled for both men and women who started using porn after getting married. Researchers found that the association between pornography use and divorce was much higher for young people. Half of the 20-year-olds who used porn after marriage divorced versus just 6% who did not use it. And it was just such an interesting, an interesting thing. Before I got married, I, and while I was in this school, like I started to get convicted around, around that, and I'd never had that conviction before at all. And I got free from, uh, from porn for six months that I was in that school, so much that I was like actually confident in that. And if people were struggling, they'd send them to, to me and I'd talk to them. But six months into that school, I had only tried to stay away from the bad thing. I hadn't gone towards the good thing. I hadn't realized that every addiction that I've ever experienced in my life is actually just a symptom of an underlying problem, that, that there, was, there was an underlying issue that I'd failed to be able to create any type of real intimacy in my life, and I hadn't found a good substitute for that. So I was just staying away from the bad thing, and then I fell. And when I fell after being put up on a pedestal as the guy that had overcome this thing that a lot of people struggled with, that it was the worst experience that I'd had in the church. I didn't know how I'd get over it. And I was in a, a church service uh, that weekend that I fell. And I didn't want to be there, but I couldn't get somebody to cover my ministry position. So I was there. And the 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 uh, sermon that week, they were in a series about who is Jesus, and the sermon that week was who do the Pharisees say Jesus is? And I'm sitting in there getting convicted about this religious spirit in my heart that I knew that I needed ministry, but I was unwilling to come forward to the altar, and they had the altar call, and I prayed that prayer in the privacy of my heart with my eyes closed and my head bowed, and while I was praying that prayer, I was thinking, who can I talk to, the, to about this? I need to get free, but I have no idea how to do it. And I thought of a guy that was a pastor in the school that I was in named Dave. And while I'm praying this prayer, and the whole sermon didn't have to do with porn or anything. It had to do with a religious mindset, but I knew where it was leading me, and I just really felt that call to go forward and get prayer. But while I'm praying this prayer and thinking about this pastor that I needed to talk to, I look up and he's standing at the altar. And my conviction went from just feeling like, man, I should have been there. But I talked to him afterwards and we sat down and he became, I became accountable to, to him. And he shared something with me in Ephesians 4 to not just put off the bad thing. In Ephesians 4, they give this example. If you have a problem with stealing, put off stealing and put on laboring with your hands and giving to the poor. Instead of just trying to not do the bad thing, do something that was good. And so he asked me, what is the thing that's behind this thing? And for me, it was a, a real lack of intimacy in my life. Like I could be intimate to a point, but like real deep intimacy, I didn't know what that was. 
So I got this idea to write love letters to my future wife. I didn't know her yet. I didn't have any idea who she was, but I got a journal and I started writing these letters. In the beginning, it was so awkward. Because <laughs> I kept it under the pillow on the other side of my bed at night and I would pull it out if I was tempted. And at first it was like, why am I saving for you, myself for you while I'm tempted? But then it turned into things that I wanted to share with her during the day. And like the enemy was right after me. Like, who do you think you are? You're never gonna overcome this. This is stupid. This is a religious activity. But as I started to, to practice it week after week, there were things that actually started to rewire in my mind. And when I met my wife, it had been a year and a half or almost two years since I started writing in that journal. And our first conversation lasted two and a half hours. We didn't run out of things to talk, to, talk about. There wasn't anything awkward in our conversation. Our first date lasted eight hours. We were just like immediately had that connection because there had been a sewing into intimacy that entire time. There's a, it's a common in, in churches that I, I've been to to say that lust is every man's struggle. And I just wanna break that lie because saying that lust is every man's struggle is believing that all men will always struggle with lust. But that's not scientific. That's not biblical. It's not even logical. What I've found is that I've had to be intentional on overcoming lust, but I don't worry, I don't not trust myself to be in the presence of anybody. I know that there's some things that aren't wise just because I don't even, I want to live above reproach and not put myself in a situation, but I don't, I don't worry all the time if I go out of town on business that I'm just going to fall. It's something that's been literally taken out of my life. I haven't struggled with porn for eight years. It's been a while. So there's that, that lie that it's everyone's, uh, everyone's problem and it's, uh, there's a, I'm gonna skip that. So 1 John 4.4 4, uh, says, My dear children, you come from God and belong to God. You've already won a big victory over those false teachers, for the spirit in you is far stronger than anything in the world. These people belong to the Christ-denying world. They talk in the world's language, and the world eats it up. But we from, come from God and belong to God. There's a... a a philosopher and, uh, and psychologist named Henry Nguyen, and he said that fear is the greatest enemy of intimacy. Fear makes us run away from each other or cling to each other in an unhealthy way, but does not create true intimacy. 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. 
And what I found, in, and I started to say earlier, that every addiction that I've had, whether it's been porn addiction, sex addiction, drug addiction, alcoholism, all of the things that I've struggled with over the course of my life, and even the ones that I thought were lesser addiction, I like compulsive exercising and an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, were all idols in my life. But they were all there because I had a deep fear behind them that if I didn't do everything on my own power, that there wasn't going to be power that would fill that void. And what I found in, in coming to know God and really being known and loved in a community of believers and finding a spouse that I fell in love with and got to know intimately, emotionally, before we physically knew each other because we wanted to do everything right in our marriage, that there's been a peace that surpasses understanding. That there's nothing that anybody could find out about me that somebody doesn't already know. And I, this year I, I, I had a, a prophecy to write a book and I tried to write the book on my own strength. It didn't work out. And then I really prayed God to God and fasted. And the book that came out was like writing my deepest, darkest secrets, secrets in story form, publishing them, and then handing a copy to my mom. And if you think about like intentionally going after fear, not everybody is called to do exactly that. But I get to live really clean. And there's such an incredible power in that because that power has also been something that has been transformative in the lives of other people. I know there's probably some of you guys or some of, some of you in here that relate to that struggle or relate to struggle with some type of addiction in your life. And if you're married, I would imagine that there's also a struggle for the spouse. If you're not married, there's sometimes a struggle for parents or for loved ones that are around the relationship. And in that, what I've found in relationships that I've been in is before coming to know God and even sometimes in the church with things that, that I've struggled with, that coming up against somebody that is unforgiving that wants to control the situation to make me better has oftentimes made the situation worse. And when I've had addicts in my life that I've, I've really struggled with, where I've struggled to control their lives, thinking that I could, I could be their savior, that I could be the one that fixed them, I developed a lot of unforgiveness in my own heart. And we had a, a freedom night where I actually had to be delivered from that. But what I found is that when I, can, when I can find forgiveness in the relationships that I have, when I can let God be the divine third in the relationship, when I can put my struggle on him, regardless of whether I'm struggling with addiction or I'm struggling with control, I can find peace in the midst of the turmoil. And I can also find lasting strength. The word forgiveness actually means to give first forgiveness, first give. And the act of forgiveness is really 
practicing living in a way of giving first, but it requires trust. And so I wanna, I wanna pray for you guys tonight, but I'm also gonna open up the altar for, for ministry time. And I just wanna give you three quick thoughts of what I've found that have really helped me overcome the world in, this, in, these, in these areas of my life. And I've said them separately, but I'll just give them to you all together. The, the first was really coming into intimacy in community, allowing people to know me. That, that in uh, James 5.16, it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. When I started to be able to trust my struggles with another, another close friend in community, it started to bring light into the darkness. The second thing is, is to really have intimacy with my spouse. Not just physical intimacy, and that's really important in marriage, but also vulnerability in challenges to not hide things or sweep things under the rug and then explode later or just secretly resent, but to develop an intimate relationship where I can go to my spouse and feel, know that I am known, know that I'm loved, know that I'm wanted and that I can feel safe to bring the things that I'm struggling with, which are sometimes her behavior, to her and not feel like I'm going to be rejected just for bringing it up and allowing her to do the same thing with me, obviously, because I'm not anywhere near perfect. But the thing that, that makes that all possible is first and foremost having to see with God. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.